The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. The French novelist Alexander Dumas, the author of Count of Monte Cristo and The Three Musketeers, once had a very serious verbal spat with a young rising politician. And when they realized that they were at strong disagreement with one another in order to save dignity and honor, they agreed to have a duel against one another. But then when they realized that they were both remarkable shots, they decided instead to draw lots. Alexander Dumas lost when he drew lots. And so he retired to a room and closed the door, and his friends waited to hear the shot ring out that would end his life. And a few minutes later, they did. They heard the boom of a revolver. And with sadness, they ran down the hallway, and they opened the door, and there they found Alexander Dumas sitting, smoking revolver in his hand. And he looked up at them and said, Gentlemen, the most remarkable thing happened. I missed. (laughs) That reminder of that true story reminds us how something like a verbal disagreement or disharmony can grow and escalate to tension that you think is worth your life. When in reality, when you stand there looking down the barrel of the end of your life, suddenly that moment of clarity reminds you many disagreements are not worth your life. Now, Paul knows what is worth your life, right? In in chapter 1, he says, for me to live, to die, for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And he's writing this letter from prison. So there are things that are of that level of importance. The truth of Jesus Christ, the good news of the gospel, the confidence we have in God's word. But there are many personal disagreements that are not of that level. Isn't it true that right now we live in a time where tensions are running high? (laughs) Where where conflict seems like everything is a life or death situation. It seems like everyone is at the edge of their ability to interact well with one another. Everyone's been walking in such tension. And so I think today's verses are so needed. It's not very common for me to preach only three verses. But boy, we, we need these three verses. You know how your, your cell phone, you can zoom in with your fingers if you want to see the picture really close? That's what we're going to do today. We're going to zoom all the way in on these three verses and notice all the phrases in them. So Philippians 4, verses 1 through 3. I hope you're there in your Bible. The title of today's sermon is Unity and Peace in the Gospel. And oh, may God give us unity and peace in the Gospel. The three points I'll make are first, resist the pressure to splinter. Stand firm in the Lord. Second, remember the harmony you share in the Lord. And third, reject my sideism, tribalism, and embrace side by side gospel grace. So first, number one, resist the pressure to splinter or retreat by standing firm in the Lord. So look in verse one of God's word, Philippians chapter four, verse one. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love, and long for my joy and crown stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Already you can tell in verse 1, there's all this love and affection that Paul has for the church that he wants them to know is what actually binds them together. When I translated the verse this week, I noticed that the word agapetoi actually 
occurs twice. In the ESV, you read whom I love, and then you read beloved, but it's actually the, the same word. Paul is doubling up for sake of emphasis how loved these folks are in the Lord with one another. He uses all these family terms. He calls them brothers. In this text, of course, it would mean brothers and sisters, my brothers and sisters in, in Christ. And he uses these strong terms, joy and, and crown. We know the Olympic Games had wreaths in the first century. And Paul says, that's what you are to me. You are the celebration of God's grace in, in my life. And don't miss that he's talking to the church collectively. You together, church, have this love with one another. Now, Paul, normally we don't think of as this affectionate. Someone in the office called him rather gushy This <laughs> in verse 1. Thought that was a good description of a man who's normally fairly stoic. So why does he let them know of such love here? Probably to let them know that what he's about to say to them in verse 2 comes from a place of great love and affection for them. You know how sometimes as a parent, you're trying to communicate something to your child that might be hard for them to hear, but you're thinking to yourself, man, if you even knew how much I love you, how much care I have for you, if you knew how deep my affection is for you, you would recognize this is coming for your good. That prepares us now for what he's going to say. But first notice the governing verb in verse 1. Stand firm in the Lord. The term is actually the same one he's used in chapter 1, verse 27, which was just read. Stand together, stand side by side. It, picture a Roman infantry that has their shields touching one another as the offense is coming. In chapter 1, 27, I, prepared it, I compared it to the child's game, Red Rover, where you link arms. But it's actually even more like that here in chapter 4, because not only are your arms linked, opposition is coming up against you. We had the joy on a Monday a couple weeks ago when it was still kind of warm, but now I've brought my Michigan called cold weather. You're welcome, by the way. <laughs> but when it was warm, we drove to Atlantic Beach. I've never been there before, and we got in there with the kids, and it was an 85-degree day. It was beautiful in God's grace, and we got out there and our kids are still pretty young. And first, they got out there and the waves smacked them over. And they were really afraid. They didn't want to go back out there again. But I went out there with them a second time and taught them how to dig their feet in the sand and hold Daddy close. And then the wave comes. And even though they're small, they would make it. It's the same imagery Paul has here. You're holding each other so close that when the opposition hits you, you stand firm. So stand firm in the Lord. Stay kete holding hands in unison regardless of what comes against you. Now, brothers and sisters, don't we need to hold each other closely in these times? The, the pressure against us to splinter is enormous. Think of the political pressure, the social culture pressure, the racial tension, the moral tension. Everything going on has been ratcheted up to the level of DEFCON 1 or 5. I can't remember which one's the worst. <laughs> but whatever is the one that you're supposed to hate everyone around you and be on high alert. Here is a verse that we still need. Stand firm in the Lord. Even when the opposition crashing against us tells you to be weary, to feel unneeded, to feel underappreciated, and to feel conflict. Instead, stand firm. If you're thinking, how can I stand firm? 
I want to encourage you, it's not a matter of genetics. It's not a matter of your personality or your upbringing. In fact, God tells us that all of us can have greater firmness in our footing. In Colossians 2, verse 5, Paul says, I rejoice in the firmness of your faith in Christ. How do you grow in firmness? As you therefore receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so continue to walk in Him, rooted and built up and established in the faith. So on the one hand, knowing Christ and knowing the faith makes you more firm. Then on the other hand, verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. You probably know people around you. Some people, if they have this much pressure, they collapse. Other people you know personally can endure this much pressure and no one else even knows they have pressure in their life. How how does that happen? Firmness in Christ. A knowledge of what's true and what's false. The ability to hear things going on on the news and know that's not true. Here's what's true. That ability is not something that you have to have the right genes or genetics for. It's something available to all of us in Christ. So stand firm. Don't miss the sphere, verse 1, in the Lord. Now, number two, remember the harmony you share in the Lord. We're zooming in again with our fingers. Now notice verse 2. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. The word entreat is the Greek word parakaleo. It means urge, appeal, or implore. And notice he repeats it twice. That's very wise. I'm not just telling this lady or just telling this lady. I'm telling both. I'm appealing to both of you. Please have harmony, agreement with one another in the Lord. Now, if we're going to zoom in, we have to ask, who are these people and what's going on here? See, who are Euodia and Syntyche? Well, First of all, they're women. Verse 2, the gender endings in the Greek are feminine. But in case you didn't have Greek, just look on to verse 3 where he says, help these women. So here are two ladies. They're two ladies in the church. We know they're in the church because verse 1, he's appealing to the church. He names them in verse 2 so they would be known by the church. In verse 3, he talks about them as gospel co-laborers with him. Let me pause for a second to speak on this because we do live in a moment of a lot of gender conflict. Is Paul singling out women because they're women? Is he targeting them because of their gender? The answer is no. Let me tell you how we know the answer is no. Paul, on many occasions, singles out men. Here's 1 Timothy 1. I entrust you to hold faith in a good conscience. But some have rejected this, making shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, two men whom I've handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Pretty direct (laughs) condemnation of two men. Paul writes in 2 Timothy 4, verse 10, Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. Cretans has gone to Galatia. Titus to Dalmatia, only Luke is with me. In verse 14, he says, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. The Lord repay him for his evil. And in fact, we know about John Mark deserting Paul because Paul called Mark out as well. So Paul has a pattern of calling out sinfulness, not based on gender. Furthermore, Paul commends, he praises women many occasions. 
2 Timothy 1, verse 5, Paul says to Timothy, I praise God for your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. Or one of my favorite passages in all of the Bible where many women are specifically praised is Romans 16. Begins in verse 1 where Paul praises God for Phoebe, a servant. And Paul says, welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of saints. Help her for she has been a great patron of many and myself. In the verses that follow, he praises God for Aquila, Mary, and then Rufus' mother, who he says has been like a mother to him, Nurus' sister, Olympus, and many others. Let's pause for a moment. If people claim that the Bible does not hold up a high view of women, perhaps they've never read the Bible. God created women. Does anyone love women more than God? <laughs> God, in fact, first gives the gospel to Eve, the first woman. It's to her that he promises that he will send someone who will crush the serpent. Later, we read in the Bible how the Messiah will come through Rahab's line. And Deborah then rises up to protect God's people. Mary, of course, carries God's very son. So what we read here in Philippians 4 is not a gender issue. It's a sin issue. Both men and women are to be like Christ. But as I was thinking this week of sometimes those who criticize the Bible that they don't know very well, I was reminded of comedian Jeff Allen. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. But this afternoon, if you want to Google Jeff Allen's testimony, it will uplift you and you'll have some laughs. In the testimony, he shared how he was far from God and his life had fallen apart, but he was out on a golf course with a wealthy man who he wanted to learn from. And the man, over time, started to tell him about God and about the Bible. And Jeff stopped him and said, oh, don't give me all that Bible stuff. I don't believe any of that. And the man said, why? Why don't you believe the Bible? What is it about the Bible that you reject, that you find off-putting? And Jeff said, well, I don't know. I'm an atheist, but I've never read the Bible. And the man said to Jeff, Jeff, you're not an atheist. You're a moron. <laughs> you're critiquing something you don't know. Jeff went home and read the Bible, and years later, the Lord brought him to faith from it. So before we critique something, we should know it. The Bible actually affirms women more than anyone in our culture ever has or ever could. Now, back to the text. In what ways are these women not agreeing with another or living in harmony? What's their dispute over? Well, the text doesn't tell us explicitly what their dispute is over, but by implication, we know it's not over. It is not over doctrine, cardinal theology, tier one gospel issues. How do we know that? First, because Paul doesn't take sides. And as I just quoted to you from other books of the Bible, he always takes sides when someone rejects the gospel. Furthermore, Paul affirms them. Did you notice in verse 3, he calls them fellow workers in the Lord whose names are in the book of life. So this is not a gospel issue. He doesn't condemn them like he does those who he does. But why would he mention their names publicly? I'm a pastor, and I've never in a sermon mentioned publicly the names of people who maybe had something going on in their life, and I can't honestly think of any reason that I, that I would, but Paul does. And if you're not aware, these letters would have been read publicly to the church. Imagine you're these two ladies, and it's Sunday morning in Philippi, and everybody's gathered together, and you read the letter of Philippians. In chapter 1, they're nodding their head. Yes, that's right. Amen. Chapter 2. Mm-hmm. Preacher, brother. Chapter 3. Yes, that's the truth. Chapter 4. You are named by name. 
an incredible feeling. Why would he name them publicly? I think there's a few reasons. First, because he knows them personally, as he says in verse 3. These are my fellow laborers. But there's another reason. I think it's because they are well known and their disharmony has become public. He mentions them in verse 2 because they're known by the church and the church knows their conflict. In fact, the whole church now needs to help them acquire harmony. Isn't it true that it's hard to keep interpersonal disharmony private? Even when you think, no one knows that I'm at odds with this other person, probably a lot of people do. Disharmony is of such a nature that when two people find themselves at odds with one another, it's hard for them not to involve other people. Don't you want to know how this person wronged me? Don't you want to hear how they mistreated me? And before long, lines sort of fall out and people pick one side or they pick the other side and something that started as an interpersonal disagreement can become a gospel casualty, threatening to sink the entire ship. Stephen Runge writes, there comes a point in interpersonal conflicts where everyone loses, regardless of how it all started. The toll of backbiting, bitterness, and resentment leaves no one unscathed. It's like what we see during political campaigns today, he writes. Paul wisely presses for an end to these matters, not by choosing sides, but by describing what a godly, honorable person would do. This disharmony threatens the whole church. So now notice verse 3, Paul's connection to them. Yes, I ask you, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel. You might know that Acts 16 is the chapter of the Bible where we read about the planting of the church of Philippi. Paul's normal plan when he went to a city was he would look for a synagogue. Paul believed that as someone who used to persecute the church and grew up a Hebrew of the Hebrews, that God had purposely ordained for him to reach out to Jews before Gentiles. So Paul always preached to the Jews first, then the Gentiles. But in order to have a synagogue in a city, you had to have at least 11 men. And apparently in Philippi, they didn't have 11 men. So Paul went down to the river where he found Lydia and other women who were God-fearing Jews, but not Christians. Paul shared the gospel to them. They became believers. And they first planted the church, these ladies. They were the foundation of it. Probably that's where Yodia and Syntyche were first met. So Paul thinks of them as people who he's known a great past with them. But now the present is splintered. Look back in verse 2, and let's see how Paul expects we move from disharmony to harmony. He writes, agree in the Lord, the Greek word for neo. The ESV translates it agree, but other translations like the NIV translate it live in harmony, and that probably better ca- captures the sense of the verb. Be it harmony with one another. Notice how we have harmony with one another. We have harmony with one another, verse 2, when we have harmony in the Lord. Doesn't it always work like that? If you're right with the Lord, you're right with others. If you're not right with the Lord, you're not going to be <laughs> right with others. In fact, when we're not right with the Lord, it is staggering how petty our disagreements can become. This is a true story. Well, I read it online, so it has to be a true story. (laughs) There are two churches that are a mile away from one another. 
and they have the exact same name. But they split 40 years ago, and here's how they split. There were two ladies that were tremendously in conflict with one another. And one day, they had a church potluck, and both of these ladies had made their own special recipe of fried chicken. And not knowing who had made the fried chicken, the pastor went over, walking through line innocuously, not planning on doing anything, but took a bite of that fried chicken and said, this is the best fried chicken I've ever had in my life. (laughs) And the lady who made the other one, and everyone who, who was her friend, went a mile down the street, planted their own church with the same name, and now 40 years later, There are two churches with the same name split over fried chicken. (laughs) It's amazing how these things happen. If we're not right with the Lord, we're not right with one another. And we start to... Have you noticed how we can do this as, as Christians? We're such sophisticated sinners that we can baptize the language of our disagreement with Christianese. If you don't agree with me, then you're not really faithful to the Lord we can ratchet up the disagreement to a level that makes it seem like it's eternally significant when in fact it might just be personal difference. We must be proactive then about resolving conflicts we have with one another because if something's broken underneath, the damage grows even if on the surface there's civility. I've described this to other people this way. Um, It's like between you and that other person, you build a half wall of ice. You might say, well, the relationship between me and this other person isn't bad, but you have to always walk over the wall, walk around the wall, avoid the wall, because something's building between you and that other person. So we must resist the pressure to splinter. We must remember the harmony we share in the Lord. But now number three, we must reject my sideism and remember side by side gospel grace. Look in verse three. Yes, and I ask you also. Now, in English, when we use the word you, we don't know if it's singular or plural unless we have context. I used to think we knew it was singular or plural if we had y'all, but my wife's family will be talking just to me and they'll say y'all. So I don't know what, what it means anymore. <laughs> But in verse 3, in Greek, the word you is in singular. Greek declines, and so you know if it's singular or plural, which means Paul is asking a specific person to help. Who is he asking to help? These two women. Most commentators, I think, correctly believe their pastor. So he's asking their pastor to step in to help these ladies who are now at a point of dispute where they cannot reconcile apart from intermediary help. Help these women. Help them because they used to labor side by side. You have that mental picture, right? Side by side, linking arms. But when we splinter, we go to one side and the other side. And we see things through the lens of our side. Have you noticed how powerful perspective is? Two people can remember the same event almost completely differently. And both be sincerely convinced that they're remembering correctly. Side by side versus side against side. Help them because they used to be side by side, not only my side. Paul is longing for them because he's seen these ladies at their best and now it's terrible 
to know them at their worst. And yet, he has hope and confidence in what their future will be. Look how the verse continues. They used to labor with me with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. This is the only time the book of life is mentioned in the New Testament except for Revelation. The book of life is that record where we read all of the names of those who are gods in Christ Jesus. But why mention it now? I think for two reasons. First, to let them know, I know right now your conflict seems so great, but don't forget you'll be together eternally. That's actually where your focus must be. You'll be family forever. Why would you spend your life now in strife? There's another reason, though. The other time it's used in the New Testament is by Christ. It's one of my favorite passages in the New Testament. The disciples have just done amazing works by God's power, casting out demons, doing amazing things, and they come down from that experience and they see Jesus and they're leaping and they're rejoicing. Lord, look at what we did. You know what Jesus tells them in Luke? Don't rejoice in what you did. Rejoice that your names are written in the book of life. See, Jesus tells us the thing that should most melt our hearts over and over and over again is not what we're doing for God, but the fact that God has saved us through His Son. If that truth humbles you, what disunity could you possibly have? So in verse 3, He reminds them where they're going and where they're from. But let's pause to think about how selfishness works so that we can avoid it. James 4 tells us, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this that your own lust or desires are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder, you covet, you fight, and you quarrel. Selfishness comes from me wanting something that I think I deserved that I didn't get. In Ken Sandy's very good book, The Peacemaker, he walks through the progress of how a desire unmet leads us to interpersonal conflict. Here's how it starts. First, we desire something. Let's say we desire to be more appreciative. Hey, more people should know how important I am, we convince ourselves. But then when that desire isn't coming the way we think it should be coming, then we move to the second step, which is to demand. I demand to be more recognized. Without me... This church, this team, this family, this company wouldn't be what it is. But then when we still think we're not getting what we deserve, then we move to step three. We judge. We judge the motives of others. I bet the real reason they're not appreciating me is because I bet they don't realize how good they have it having me around. And then we finally move to step four. We punish. Now we punish people in different ways depending on your personality. If you're more uh, introverted, you might punish people passive-aggressively. You might give them the cold shoulder. You might not talk to them with the same warmth you used to have. Ken Sandy writes it this way, sending subtle, unpleasant cues over a long period of time is an age-old method of inflicting punishment. You try and hurt them because you don't think they've appreciated you enough. If you're the other personality type, then you might hurt them more aggressively You might say untrue things about them. You might gossip about them, slander about them. You might lash out at them. 
I had a friend, uh, or a girl, I should say, I know of in high school, who felt underappreciated, so she concocted a plan to cause the other girls to hate one another so that she could emerge. <laughs> That's a way to punish others. You, but it starts with desire, as James says. How does strife come from you? Where do wars come from? Do they not come from desires within? I want to be seen. I want to be noticed. I want to be recognized. I want to be appreciated. I demand to be appreciated. I demand to be noticed. In fact, if you don't notice and appreciate me, you must not realize how good you have it. So I have the right to mistreat you. So how do we turn conflict into partnership? How do we make peace? Well, the three principles today. Resist the pressure to splinter. Stand firm in the Lord. Secondly, remember the harmony you share in the Lord. Third, reject my sideism. Remember side-by-side gospel grace. But now, I'll quote uh, the principles in Ken Sandy's book again, The Peacemaker. In The Peacemaker, he gives three alternatives, and they're worth reading more about. But in the middle, you have The Peacemaker. On the other ditch, you have The peace faker, and on the other ditch you have the peace breaker. Let me explain what he means by this. You know in Matthew 5, verse 9, Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. Jesus did not say, blessed are the peacekeepers. We know how different those are, right? Some people, because they just want to be left alone, they deny a problem, they avoid a problem, they try to do anything to escape a problem. That's peace faking. That's not actual peace. Other people, because they feel like they haven't been treated well, they overly confront and are unnecessarily angry. That's peace-breaking. But what the Scriptures tell us to do is to be a peacemaker. And there are three ways the Scriptures talk about that. First, Scripture tells us to overlook offenses as much as possible. 1 Peter 4.8 Above all, love one another because love covers a multitude of sins. So many problems we have with one another can simply just be forborn and forgotten. One of the best pieces of counsel I got when I was starting out my marriage and my pastoral ministry was from our pastor who told us, Josh, Stephanie, just refuse to be offended. Make it almost impossible to be offended. Develop the ability of thick skin. Or as Charles Spurgeon once quipped, I have one blind eye and one deaf ear, and they are the best eye and best ear that I have. <laughs> that, that practice will go so far in your life if you just make it almost impossible to be upset with someone. Even if they're attempting to hurt you, you've become willfully naive. But if you can't do that, or if it's beyond that, then secondly, Jesus tells us, Matthew eighteen fifteen: if your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault. Notice, Don't go tell others his fault. (laughs) Go tell him his fault. Don't bring anybody else in until you've first gone to him. So step one, we try to overlook everything we can. If we can't, then we must go to that other person directly. We only go to the third step, get help, if we've gone to that person and it hasn't been able to be reconciled. So don't be a peace faker. (laughs) Don't be a peace breaker. Be a peacemaker. Now I'm going to say something that will sound maybe confrontational, but I'm convinced the Bible tells us it's true. You cannot be at peace with anyone until you're at peace with God. 
In John 14, verse 27, Jesus said this, Peace I leave unto you, not the kind of peace the world gives. My peace I leave unto you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Do you see what Jesus is saying? There's a fake kind of peace that you can have apart from me. But real peace only happens through me. Meaning there are families who don't have Christ. When they get together for Thanksgiving, they can all figure out how to avoid the landmines, but they don't actually have peace. Peace comes when the Prince of Peace, Isaiah 9, 6, Jesus reigns in your heart. And that only happens when you know you have peace with God through Him. Romans 5, verse 1, Therefore, see, since we've been justified by faith, first we have faith in Christ and we're justified, then we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We've obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Romans goes on to say that Christ died for us while we were sinners, and He reconciled us to God. Jesus made peace between sinners and a holy God. That's only received through faith. So I need to speak to you this morning. If you're not sure that you're a Christian and you long for peace, I must tell you on the basis of God's Word, you must first come to Christ. Then you can have peace. And in order for you to come to Christ, you need to do the hard thing that keeps us from having peace. You need to first own your sin. The very reason we tend to be at strife with one another is because we don't want to acknowledge where we were wrong. And that's the very reason many never find peace with God. Don't make that error today. Be humble enough to go to God and say, God, I have wronged you. I have sinned against you. I deserve to be punished, but I praise you that you punished your son so that I could be saved. Lord, I receive in faith what Christ has done for me. I urge you to do that today and experience the peace that only Christ has. But also I want to encourage us as a church to resolve to handle in conflict biblically. I have a friend in Michigan who is a pastor that I respect greatly. And in his church's bylaws and covenant, they have covenanted together to follow the four steps of Ken Sandy's peacemaker. Therefore, the whole church on days like today when they have communion can recite these four principles. We are committed to glorifying God above getting our own way. We are committed to getting the log out of our own eye and not denying what we did wrong. We are committed to gently restoring others, not gossiping about them or running over them. And we are committing to being reconciled despite our differences. So let Emmanuel be a place where we stand firm in the Lord, where the sphere of our unity is Christ. And today, this morning, if you don't know Him, may you come to Him in faith and finally know the peace that He purchased through taking the brunt of our sins. Let's close in prayer this morning. Dear God, we know in America you can walk a couple blocks and find multiple churches that often have a history of their existence based on a fight that goes back a couple generations ago. We need to hear afresh what Paul told these two ladies and also this whole church. Help one another. Agree in the Lord. Stand firm and have harmony. 
But Lord, if we've ever needed it, if we've ever needed ears to hear, it's right now. Our country is at a point of division that few of us have ever seen. The boiling pot is ready to explode. And people are ready to take up arms against one another in the conviction that they're right, the other team is wrong, my side has to be correct, your side has to be demonized. And therefore we miss that it's not about my side or your side. In fact, it's about the wounded side at the cross. The side of our Lord who bled so that He could cover our sins and truly unite us in peace. May our church live with the kind of peace that it is a testimony to this world that fulfills the promise of Jesus. If you love one another, you will so prove to be my disciples. But Lord, I do pray for maybe one who's here this morning who hasn't yet received the peace of God that passes understanding. May they do the hard thing, but the first thing that gains peace, may they acknowledge, Lord, I have wronged you. And you have the right to be upset with me. But Lord, I ask you to please forgive me, knowing that you will, because your Son has paid for my sin. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's ebcraleigh.com. E-I-G-H dot com.